0: Hi, my name is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the jew 3 Project, and I'm so excited because on Monday, September 3rd, we're having our first Courageous Conversations event. Now, those who have been rocking with us for a while know that we've done Courageous Conversations in the past, but it's been via Google Hangouts, where we take a scholar or pastor trained in a more conservative evangelical space and a scholar and pastor trained in a more mainline progressive space. And I'm so excited because we're moving from these Google Hangouts to an actual event that's going to be phenomenal. We have 24 scholars and pastors lined up to talk about things like sexuality, the authority of scripture, justice, Paul versus Jesus. It's going to be amazing. Some of the people that we have are Dr. Judy Finchers Williams, Dr. Jarvis Williams, Dr. Bruce Fields, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Delman Coates, Dr. Brianna Parker, Dr. Teresa Fry Brown. I mean, it is going to be amazing. Dr. Yolanda Pierce, you don't want to miss this event. So I want you to go on Jew3project.com and register. Meet us in Chicago, Illinois on Monday, September 3rd. It's going to be a phenomenal experience. I don't think anything like this has ever been done. So join us as we make history. Now let's get to the Jew3 Project podcast. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. You for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Michael Lacona, also known as Mike, It was which is with what he <laughs> would like for me to call him uh, for this episode. Um, welcome, Mike. How are you doing?
1: Good. Thanks for having me on, Lisa.
0: <laughs> it's great to have you on. Uh, before we start talking about our topic today, just give our audience just a little bit uh, background about
1: yourself well I'm fifty seven years old. I was born in Baltimore, Maryland um, and uh, uh, became a Christian at the age of ten. Um, I didn't I, I was a little different than, than most kids. Uh, around the age of seven or eight, I just started asking my mom how do I get to heaven? And I was really interested in that. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe it was the Lord drawing me. I don't know why. and she'd say, well you know if you uh, if you do more good than than bad, you'll get to heaven. And, uh, you know, I, I pulled my sister's hair, I hit her, I made her cry. And I said, well, what if I do more bad than good? She said, well, then you go to hell to be with the devil forever. And I thought, well, where am I on that scale? You know, and around age 10, I was in church and this uh, Christian magician, illusionist, whatever you'd like to call them, came in and, uh, they pulled all the youth together and he did uh, a show, but he would relate some of the things he was doing to the gospel and for the first time in my life, I understood that it wasn't what I did. It was what Christ did for me that uh, provided forgiveness of sins and that I could have eternal life through Christ. Um, so I got tricked into heaven, you know, <laughs> uh, into Christianity. So, uh, But I became a Christian. I didn't grow a whole lot during my teen years spiritually. Um, I went to Liberty University. I was a music major. And uh I, there it just really got me very interested in spiritual things and so I, I I wanted to learn Greek so I could read the New Testament in its original language. And so I went to grad school and toward the end my last semester I was uh, experiencing some some real doubts about the Christian faith and I'd never I'd never had that before. It was a matter of um, it wasn't a matter of anything I learned it was it was kind of... Um, Well, if I'd been born in Afghanistan, maybe I'd be a Muslim. Or if I'd been born in uh, China, I'd be an atheist. Uh, India, I'd be a Hindu. So why am I a Christian? Is it because Christianity is true or is it because that's the way I was brought up? And so I started having these doubts. And um, I went to uh, someone, uh, one of my roommates recommended, Gary Habermas, who taught philosophy and apologetics at Liberty. Never had him for a course. And uh, spoke with him, went to his office, spoke with him, and he settled uh, my doubts for the moment. And then I finished up my classwork and then went um, home back to Baltimore. And um, I I guess at that point, uh, you know, then I started coming in contact with atheists for the first time in my life, you know, and skeptics. And they were raising questions I didn't know how to answer. And that got me more and more interested. I called Habermas and he'd give me some answers and he'd refer me to books to read, not just read and read. And um, so that's what got me involved in apologetics. And then I guess there's one other thing I could add to that, e- The this equation about my short bio about myself is that um, um, I, I continue to doubt off and on. And I learned later that this is just part of the way I'm wired. I, and it's not just my faith I doubt, it's everything. Did I marry the right woman? Did I buy the right car, the right house, the right, right watch, the right cologne, something like that. I, I question everything. Um, and something as important as the eternal destiny of my soul I wanted to get right in, in terms of the world view. So I ended up doing a, a PhD uh, and looking at the resurrection of Jesus to see which it does the evidence really point in that direction. And uh, during that period, uh, I mean, I just got obsessed. My doctoral dissertation ended up being three to four times longer than the average one. Um, oh. I ended up Uh, debating atheists, some of the leading atheists and um, also skeptics and Muslims in the world because I figured I want to know the truth no matter where it leads. And I would pray, God, if Christianity is true, I I think there's certainly enough evidence to show that God exists, but if Christianity for some reason is not true, then show me. Even if you have to humiliate me, I'm fine with that. I just want to follow truth. I want to follow you. Um, Because I, I guess I felt... I didn't have anything to to fear with truth. What my fear was is that my own biases would keep me from embracing truth, even if I saw it, because I had my own bias for my own particular view. So I tried to be as open-minded as possible. And that's why I debated some of these leading non-believers because I figured you know, I might have biases uh, toward my view. They don't have those same biases. They have their own toward their own views, but not toward the Orthodox Christian view. So, um, But the more I started to debate them on the resurrection, the more I became convinced that it actually occurred because of the weakness of their arguments. So that's a little about my journey. i married, been married 31 years to a wonderful wife. I have two kids, um, and uh, one's, mar- one's married, the other's a firefighter. And uh, so we live in the Atlanta area. So a little about me. I'm also a a professor at uh, Houston Baptist University, and we have our own nonprofit ministry on the side, risenjesus.com.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I see uh, when I was looking at your website that you debated Bart Ehrman, uh, which is um, an interesting part of my story because when I took um, New Testament in undergrad, he was our textbook. So I thought I was taking like a, uh, a, I thought it was going to be like Sunday school, uh, but shortly I found out after I enrolled in the course that it was nothing like that, which I'm sure you've heard that story millions of times. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: In fact, I had a grad student once who said he sat in Ehrman's class in that New Testament, or he sat in Ehrman's New Testament intro class where he uses that same textbook that you had. And he said the first day of class, Ehrman said, uh, you know, how many of you are Christians? And there's like 400, 450 people in the room. And he said about a half a dozen people raised their hand. makes me wonder why they took Ehrman then for a New Testament intro, you know um, if they're not believers, but about half a dozen raised their hand. He said, by the end of the semester, my goal is to have you doubt everything you believe. So Mm -hmm. it's just like in that movie, God is not dead. Only Bart Ehrman was the antagonistic Mm -hmm. professor and it it happens all over this country. It really does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, it really does. Um, so we're going to talk about a topic uh, that's near and dear to your heart, um, the resurrection. Um, and I titled this, um, episode resurrection factor fiction uh, because uh, people do uh, think it's fiction. It's hard to believe for many people, but if you're a Christian, it is at the crux of our belief. You can't not believe in the resurrection and be a Christian. Um, what is the m- most common? Um, uh, the most common objection to the resurrection that you see um, or in, in your ministry throughout your debates? Um, throughout your talks with students, what what is the most common objection?
1: Well, the most common objection amongst more sophisticated thinkers, I should say, and that would be people like scholars that I would debate and, you know, people who really look into the stuff would be that the disciples experienced hallucinations of the risen Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, they were grief stricken. And, you know, on the surface, that sounds Plausible, right? It sounds reasonable. But then when you look into it, you find that the hallucination hypothesis ends up being uh, perhaps the very weakest one out there uh, for a number of reasons. Um, Number one, not everybody is a candidate for a hallucination, even if you're in the same frame of mind. So, for example, uh, numerous studies on hallucinations done over the past century and longer have shown that uh, the group most likely or most prone to experience a hallucination. The kind of people are senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one. And only about 7%, uh, 50% of them experience a hallucination of some sort. That's quite a bit, but it's only 50%, not 100%. Okay, 50%. But even so, out of all of those senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one, only 7% experience visual hallucinations of their loved one. Now, what's the difference between that and the fifty percent? Well, not all hallucinations are visual. Some are auditory. Some are you set, have a sense of smell. You smell their perfume or something, but it you know. Or um, uh, there's the of taste. There's motion. There's of being touched. Um, so it, there's these multiple modes of hallucinations, and the halluc- kind of hallucination that is experienced most by senior adults bereavement even loss of a loved one is the sense of presence of that person in the room. You don't see them, smell them, hear them, feel them, anything. You just kind of have the sense that they're in the room. And of the 50% who experience hallucinations, 39% of them have that kind of a hallucination. That's the most common. But of the 50% who experience them, only 14% of them or 7% of all senior adults for even the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination. Now, So that's one thing. The disciples, according to all the reports we have, all of them, 100% of them experienced an appearance of Jesus, which is beyond. You either have to say that the reports are lying, of course, or you just say this wasn't a, a hallucination. Another problem with it is, is um, what we learn is our knowledge of um, from the field of psychology, the mental health profession, is that Hallucinations occur in the mind of an individual. They're like dreams. I can't wake up my wife in the middle of the night and say, Honey, I'm having this dream that we're in Hawaii. Go back to sleep. Join me in my dream and let's have this free vacation. Um, because it's a private occurrence. that's not group. Now, she might go back to sleep and dream she's in Hawaii, but we're not having the same dream. We're not participating with, with one another in the same dream. Having the same conversation and maybe have an argument in the dream and then wake up and continue that argument no because it 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 didn't really happen it's it's not reality in the dream okay and it's the same thing with hallucinations hallucinations are false sensory perceptions we are perceiving something that's not really there so you can't have a group hallucination you um um, in fact they're um Uh, a book that was published by the American Psychological Association, uh, Hallucinations, the Science of Idiosyncratic Perception. Um, They talk about all the research on hallucinations over the past century, um, and they they don't deal with group hallucinations. I contacted the authors. I said, why why didn't you? They said, we could not find a single documented case of a group hallucination. And what we understand about the mind, they can't occur. And then finally, a group hallucination, I'm sorry, Hallucinations do not account for the appearance to Paul. Paul was out persecuting the church. He wasn't grieving over Jesus' death. He thought Jesus was a false and failed Messiah. And so Jesus. he believed it was God's will to destroy that movement Jesus had started. So Jesus would have been the very last person in the universe Paul would have expected to see or wanted to see. So the hallucination hypothesis, even though it's the most popular objection or alternative hypothesis, um, to the resurrection offered by scholars today, it's probably the weakest mm-hmm. amongst uh, those who
0: aren't um, scholars. Was what is one of the leading objections you hear?
1: Oh boy! Well, you'll have some uh, on the internet say, "Well, Jesus never existed. If he never existed, you know, he couldn't have risen from the dead." And you know that is a position. That is just, it's considered insanity by, by scholars. Um, in fact, uh, the leading proponent of that uh, among scholars of the view that Jesus never existed is a guy named Richard Carrier, uh, an atheist historian. And um, he says, even when including himself, he only knows of eight historians in the world who would say that Jesus never existed. So uh, imagine if there were only eight scholars who said that Jesus rose from the dead, we would be laughed and mocked and rightfully so. Um, but that's all, they, that, that's all the, the scholars who would say in the relevant fields, who would say that Jesus never existed, eight. So, um, I mean, it's just a ridiculous position. You have to really do a lot of, of unbridled speculation um, and ad hoc constructions without a, a shred of evidence in order to to get to that kind of conclusion. And that's why almost all scholars, 99.999% of all scholars have rejected that hypothesis. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of them. You know, another one you'll hear is miracles just don't occur today. We don't see them today. And for them, I'd, I'd just say, well, get out of your own a, a world of skeptical subculture, and go to some third world countries, or or go to some people here in the U.S. who have experienced miracles. Um, there's plenty of people like this. Um, so there, that objection just flies in the face of some really good evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there's many others, but you know those things are are pretty easily refuted.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one that I've heard recently, well, I've heard this in the past, but I heard it again yesterday was the idea of it being a copycat, um, narrative, uh, that there are plenty of people who had this idea of dying and rising again. And it's yeah. just, uh, a copycat, uh, story that they've taken from, uh, Greek mythology or Egyptian mythology. Uh, what, what is your response to that?
1: Well, I'd say, first of all, I would probably ask them like, who do you have in mind and uh, what evidence is there for it? Because most of the examples that are typically cited are spurious. Um, they get it from pop books written by non-scholars. And when you go to check out, you know, uh, their documentation of it, there is none, or if there is some, um, then you go to that where what they're referring to and they don't provide documentation. So um and and then you talk to scholars on, say, Buddhism or Hinduism or some of these, and they say, that, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. There is nothing like that. Now, that's not to say that there aren't any parallels of dying and rising heroes and things like that that pre predate Christianity. So the closest one to, to parallel to Jesus that predates is Asclepius. And he was known as a healer. He's a mythical character um, from uh, the Homeric epics, I believe. So we're talking about nearly a millennium before Jesus, you know, maybe 800 years or so before Jesus. and um, But he's just a healer. Say, well, that's not that impressive. Um, All right. So the closest parallel to Jesus that comes after him is a guy named Apollonius of Tiana. And he lived in the first century and died at the end of the first century. But the earliest account we have of him is by Philostratus. And he's writing about 125 years after Apollonius's death, and he says that there are, are different accounts, like there's some accounts that he died, other accounts that he did not die, so they're not even in uh, accord there, and then there is only one account that he provides of uh, post-death appearance of Apollonius, and it's in a setting, we don't know when it happened, whether it was days, weeks, months, or years after his death, but it says a bunch of uh, followers of Apollonius were together, and uh, just kind of hanging out, and one had fallen asleep, and he woke up, and he said "He Apollonius appeared to him in a dream, and no one else saw him. Well, is that the same thing as the resurrection of Jesus? So that in order to get a single Jesus, you have to combine tons, of, a lot of different figures, like a Dionysus, who uh, was a son of Zeus, uh, who had a divine paternity, and who had his life threat, uh, and, and who... um, um made wine, and then you take um, a Thor, who had his life threatened at birth, and you take the Asclepius and the Apollonius, and then you add Hercules, who, because he was sick, he built a very large fire, threw himself into it to kill himself, and then said, it was said that he was seen asc- ascending to heaven on the horse Pegasus. Now, that really doesn't sound a whole like Jesus's story, But what they'll do is they'll take that one item about ascending to heaven. Forget his suicide. Forget that he ascended on a horse. He ascended to heaven. That's the only thing they pick out of that. So they pick out only those items that are similar to Jesus from all these different figures who had existed, whether historical or legendary, over more than a thousand year period. And you put them all together to get one Jesus. Now, you can see why historians don't find that persuasive. Um, It would be like saying, well, Abraham Lincoln was a tall, lanky Illinois senator who became president and was elected to two terms. Um, John F. Kennedy was a U.S. president who graduated from Harvard. Um, David Palmer was a character in the popular television series 24 who portrayed the first black U.S. president. You put all three of these figures together and you get Barack Obama, a tall, lanky Illinois senator who was elected to two terms as president. He graduated from Harvard and was the first black U.S. president. Therefore, Barack Obama didn't exist. Therefore, the story about Barack Obama is just legend that borrowed from parallel from other accounts. And you'd say, that's insane. You have to take only pick and choose certain qualities or characteristics of that person from three different characters that uh, lived over two centuries Well, wait a minute, with Jesus, you're taking about a half dozen figures that existed over a thousand year or more period in order to get one Jesus there. That's what's going on. So there's a lot of different responses I could provide to that, but that's just one of them.
0: Yeah, and I think that's excellent and helpful uh, to those who are wrestling uh, with this idea of copycat and putting parallel because you know social media memes and things like that and conspiracy videos it's like it could be very persuasive if you post uh, uh i've seen like they do like a, a kind of like a split screen video where they show like these mythical characters and then put scripture on the end and try to make it seem like Uh, It's the same and then it's the copycat, Uh, but I think, you know, the example that you gave really helps people to think through it just a little bit more critically. Um, What when when you're um, just if you were to write a blog on uh, the proof of the resurrection, what what points would you would you list out uh, as proof uh, that Jesus did rise from the dead?
1: Well, there's so many different ways, Lisa, that we could go about it, and it depends on the, the crowd that I'm talking to. But since we're looking at something in just a nutshell here, I would point out, first of all, that when we are looking at things historically, um, just to, to look at what we our expectations is, no historian can get into a time machine, return to the past, and verify uh, certain conclusions, So you use historical method and we talk in degrees of probability. So the first thing I would do is saying, you know, when there are skeptics and there are Christians and everyone, no matter who you are, everyone is biased. So one of the things that we can do is let's just look at a couple of things that even skeptical historians, atheists, agnostics, Jewish historians, they regard them as as fact. That would be things such as Jesus died by crucifixion, that shortly thereafter, uh, his disciples had experiences of what they perceived was the risen Jesus appearing to them, and that three, these experiences occurred not only to individuals, but also in group settings, and four, you have a persecutor of the church named Paul, who also had an experience he interpreted as the risen Jesus appearing to him and it radically transformed his life from a persecutor of the church to one of its most aggressive advocates. Now, virtually 100% of scholars agree on those things. Um, I wouldn't say 100% agree on the group appearances, but uh, probably 75 to 85% would agree that these experiences occurred to groups as well, which rule out group hallucinations, of course. Um So the question then for the historian is what's the best explanation for these? And then it's just easy to show how the resurrection hypothesis uh, explains all four of these facts far better than any other explanation.
0: Um, There was another question I got um, from someone uh, yesterday, the Friday to Sunday, getting three days from Friday to Sunday. I'm sure you've heard that before. (laughs) What is your response to that? Because I was like, three days, Uh, Friday night, they're like, well, did he die Friday morning? You know, the
1: sign of Jonah three days and three nights or, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, that's easy. Uh, what we're looking at here, Lisa is a figure of speech. It's a, it's a temporal figure of speech. That's similar to like what we would say today. Um, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute. That'll take forever um, well, we don't really mean it will take forever. We don't even really mean we'll be there in 60 seconds. What we mean when we say we'll be there in a minute is we'll be there in a short period of time. it will take forever. Oh, well, that could be half an hour. That could be an hour. It takes longer than I'm willing to give, you know? Um, so wh- how do we know this? Well, because we have in antiquity, we have like, uh, in the Acadian medical literature, they would use the term you'll be healed in three days, meaning a short period of time. Um, you also have in the book of Esther where uh, the people come to her and they say, please uh, help us with this. They're, they're, they're going to hang. Um, uh, what was his name? Uh, you know, her uncle. I, I think it was. Uh, please, And then come after the rest of us, Jews, please help. And she says, I'll tell you what, go and fast for three days and three nights. And after that, I will go into the king and speak to, to him. And it says that they did as she said. And then it says, on the third day she went in. Well, wait a minute. She said three days and three nights. And then she went in on the third day. Well, what's that? See, we're looking at things with uh we're looking at things with precision, uh, as we talk about here, you know, in the 21st century. They were indifferent in many cases to those kinds of things. So in if you look at the four gospels, if you look at Paul, throw him in there. They have he rose on the third day, he rose after three days, he rose after three days and three nights. Well, you know, it's just the three day motif is a figure of speech, and we can also show this through Matthew, in which it appears. So Jesus gives the sign of Jonah in Matthew when he says, um, when they say show us a sign, and he says the sign of Jonah as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so we will send a man be in the heart of the earth. Okay, well, then you come to his burial, and they bury him, and then the Jewish leaders come, and they say to Pilate, this deceiver, while he was alive, said that he would be raised, uh, uh, let's see, after three days. So give us a guard until the third day, so that his disciples won't be able to come and steal his body, and then the lie that uh, uh, comes after that will be greater than what we've currently heard. So here's the thing. He says he's going to be raised from the dead after three days, but they're only asking for a guard for the tomb until the third day. So in other words, they're going to pull the guard away from the tomb at the time they need it most. Well, they wouldn't do that. So that just shows that the the three-day thing, it's just a motif. That's all it is. It means a, he'll be raised on a short period of time. That's all that means. It just so happens that he was crucified on Friday, and then there's Saturday, and then there was Sunday. He was raised on the third day. But they're not looking in terms of 24-hour days and in precise terms. Mm-hmm. So it's it's wrongheaded to try to back the crucifixion up to Wednesday or Thursday in order to try to make it fit with the three days and three nights. Because if you do that, you still have a contradiction with on the third day mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. So, yeah.
0: Do you ever get the pushback that, you know, if the three days was figurative,
1: why should we take the resurrection literal? Oh, great question. And that one's <laughs> easy, too. Well, you look at the writings of, of the early Christians. Like, for example, there, perhaps you know one of the earliest uh, pieces of literature in the New Testament is Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, um, you have some uh, people in Corinth who are confusing the Christians, and they're saying, look, don't expect a resurrection someday. When you die, that's it. That's, you, you don't exist anymore. And so Paul writes back to them. And he's saying, look, you know, um, the general resurrection that we talk about when we will all be raised when Jesus returns. uh, Jesus was the beginning, the first fruits of the general resurrection. And so since he, you know, the two are inextricably linked since it's the general resurrection. So if we're not going to be raised, then Christ was not raised. Okay. so and he says, look, if Christ has not been raised. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. They have not been forgiven because he was a false prophet, a failed Messiah. Those who have died believing in Christ, of your friends and relatives, are forever lost. You are suffering persecution needlessly. Uh, I and the rest of the apostles, Paul says, uh, would be telling a lie. And why would we be telling a lie about Jesus' resurrection? Will you make God a liar? Um, because we say that God raised Jesus when he didn't. Um, Why would we lie if we're facing death and persecution every day, and you're facing it? If Jesus was not raised, we're not going to be raised, so let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's party today. Let's get all the ice cream, sex, drugs, whatever we want. Let's do it, because this life is all there is. So Paul who's preaching the same gospel message as the Jerusalem apostles is crystal clear in saying the resurrection was a real of Jesus was a real event because if it isn't our faith is worthless. And then it's interesting to see, of course all the gospels talk about the resurrection in a a historical sense. And then you've got the critics, the early critics of Christianity. They're there. Rebuttals to the Christian claim are very telling. Matthew reports that the Jewish leadership were saying the disciples stole the body. Uh, In the middle of the second century, you've got Justin Martyr saying that the Jewish leadership were saying the same thing. Um, You've got Tertullian around the year 200 saying that skeptics were claiming that the gardener at the tomb reburied Jesus' body. You've got Kelsa saying that Jesus faked his death. Now, notice that all of these objections are to explain our answers to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and that we have an empty tomb. So, th- all the skeptics understood the Christians to be speaking of the resurrection as a historical event and then and not as a figure of speech. And then it's interesting to see how the Christians responded. They never came back and said, oh, well, wait a minute. Uh, we don't mean to say that Jesus was raised in a real sense. That's yuck. We're just saying that we still experience his presence today or that he was exalted in heaven or that his memory and teaching still live on with us today. No, they responded by saying, no, you're wrong on that. Um, you know, the deci- Jesus really did rise from the dead. The disciples did not steal the body of Jesus, uh, and things like that. So, there's no reason at all to think that the early Christians spoke of Jesus' resurrection uh, in a as a figure of speech. That it, I mean, Paul used it in metaphorical senses at times, but he also used it in a historical sense. He used both. Um, but there's no reason to think that the earliest Christians were thinking they just used resurrection as a figure of speech
0: mm-hmm. do you have time for one more question i know our time is uh well spent here yeah uh, sure okay um for the what was the significance of the women uh being the first ones to uh to report the resurrection of jesus and how does that give credence to the fact of the resurrection
1: good question so you know antiquity things aren't like it it is in western countries today where women have a fair shake at the table you know um you know it's not like in the united states like it was 100 or 200 years ago you know women have a a lot of rights now um so it's more like it probably was in muslim countries today where women are you know are 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 kept down they're they're not they don't have the same prestige or role uh, status amongst the you know it, humanity as as men do. So um in fact, Josephus wrote that a woman should never be allowed to testify because of her gender, the levity of her gender. And you know, Josephus is a Jewish historian in the first century. You've got in the in the Talmud, uh, another Jewish uh, writing of antiquity it says, Better the law of God be burned than placed in the hands of a woman. (laughs) Or uh, blessed is the man whose children are male. Woe to him whose children are female. And you look in the Greco-Roman literature, and you find that women just had a a, a place in society that was subpar to what men had. So given that, if you are going to invent a story, let's say Jesus did not rise from the dead. But you want to invent the story that he did and you want to persuade people that he did. Why on earth would you make the women your primary witnesses to the risen Jesus to the empty tomb? They're the one that see the angel. they're the one that Jesus appears to first in in Matthew's gospel. Um, and where are the men? they're hiding? Uh, so it makes the men look bad. It makes the women look good. If you're going to invent a story and you want to persuade people, you're not going to make your primary witnesses of that story women. Um, so this is what's called the criterion of embarrassment. Um, it's, it, it's, you just would, it would be an embarrassing. It would be like things like when John says that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him or when Mark and others report that Peter rebuked Jesus for telling them he would die and rise from the dead. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Well, why would you invent such a thing um, uh, about the leader of the church who you want people to follow? Uh, You make him look bad. You make uh, Jesus' brothers look bad and... And Jesus, too, because if Jesus brothers, if Jesus couldn't even convince his brothers, then why should I believe him, you know? So that's that's why it's important. The women become the primary witnesses in a society that look down on the testimony of a woman. And then we notice in 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 3 through 7, this oral tradition that has all these uh, list appearances to Peter, to the 12, to more than 500, to James, to all the apostles. Women aren't listed. Why? because this is the charisma, this is the official formal public proclamation and they don't mention the women because it's not going to get them any ground it's just going to cause controversy uh it'd be just like someone trying to um say the gospels are reliable let me tell you about all the apparent contradictions in them you know you, you wouldn't bring that up in something like that now we can address those things if asked i've written a book on on gospel differences you know um but but you don't raise those things and they're not going to bring the women up in public proclamation because of the 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 problems that could uh, but the fact that matthew mark luke and john have women discovering the empty tomb is profound
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and i I think it just is one way that got uh that jesus kind of flips culture on his head uh throughout his interaction with women uh throughout the gospels uh, so that's definitely helpful for those who are looking for resources on um, how they can be more equipped to um, engage this topic with skeptics on the resurrection. What books would you recommend?
1: Well, I, I don't want to sound self-promoting here, but uh, years ago, uh, back in two thousand and four, Gary Habermas and I published a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, and it is, um, in fact, it's our best-selling book, um, and it's a uh, It's a self-study course on this for, you know, for non-scholars. And yet you'll be able to answer about 90% of the people you speak with. And it's actually got a CD in the back of it that works with PCs, not Macs, um, but PCs. And it's a simulated television game show with a three-dimensional animated game show host who's pretty funny. And he helps you master the information that you learn in the book. And that video game cost over a quarter million dollars to produce. We had a company that made tank simulators for the Department of Defense say that they wanted to do it for us at no cost. So they, they wow. did. It was a, not owned by the government, but it was a you know independent contractor. And they did it for us, a Christian owned, and they did it for us for free. So, I mean, it's a fun game. So a lot of people found that book helpful. For those who really want to get in depth and really know the stuff, um, then my book... The resurrection of jesus a new historiographical approach it's over 700 pages and that is more for the academically minded they can get in and and see where all the scholars are pointing and see what the original texts are saying both in the greek and the english translation see the major objections and how to do historical method and all that kind of stuff um so that that would be a a suitable book in fact habermas says that he thinks is the best book written on the resurrection so far you know, if you're really wanting to get into the nitty gritty into it, most people don't need that. Uh, most people don't want that. So the first book I mentioned would will be sufficient for most. Awesome. And, and how they can, can watch debates on this. I've got several debates I can watch on my YouTube channel.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what's your YouTube channel and your social media handles? And um, Yeah. And your last words for
1: our audience. YouTube channel, just go and type in my name, Mike Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A in YouTube, and they'll see my channel pop up. Um, my uh, On social media, go to my public figure page. I don't friend people on my personal page unless I know them, um, but on my public figure page, and that's where I do most of my posting anyway. The kind of stuff that they want, it's on my public figure page. That's facebook.com forward slash Lacona uh twitter is at michael Lacona. and oh. the final thing to say is uh i you know the the resurrection of jesus has a lot of good historical evidence that supports it and if uh, don't get here here's one thing a, a big piece of advice i'd give there are a lot of questions that come up gospel differences i have some guy who's who's been emailing me now he's really troubled because most scholars question whether the the woman caught in adultery story was in the original uh, gospel of John and it's bothering him. You know, it's like uh, we can get sidetracked with all these things, all these different, but here's the bottom line. If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. And it remains true. Even if it were to be the case that some things in the Bible were not as long as a person keeps that in mind, these other things won't be so troublesome. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Christianity is true. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it.
0: Awesome. Yes. And I believe that the resurrection is not fiction, but fact, Uh, to answer the question we posed at the beginning. So thank you, Dr. Lacona. I really, really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will enjoy um, what you had to say. Thank
1: you so much, Lisa.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching June 3 Project, and it'll be right there for you.